Before we get to the show, I want to make sure you know about our podcast, Making Marketing. It's a show where Shireen Patak talks to the biggest names in the marketing industry about the decisions they're making in the business every day. Check it out. It's on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and Anchor.fm. Or you can go to digiday.com and learn more. Hello and welcome to Digiday Live, our podcast where we bring you the best sessions from our many summits around the world. I'm Aditi Sangu, and today I have a session from the Digiday Retail Forum. Skincare is not one size fits all. At least that's the philosophy behind popular skincare brand, Curology. In order to give consumers the best experience possible, Curology focuses on personalization throughout the entire experience. Learn about the importance of customization as a core part of marketing from Fabian Seelbach, the SVP of marketing at Curology. Curology is a skincare brand. It seeks to kind of simplify everything to do with skincare. Tell us a little bit about the brand itself because I don't think everybody's familiar with it. Yeah, so Curology, what we do is customize prescription skincare. So to unpack that a little bit, what that means is when you come to our site, you sign up, you fill out a pretty lengthy medical questionnaire that talks about your skin goals, uh, your medical history, and then you upload photos as well of your skin. And then our team of medical providers based in San Diego, they're all in-house, actually diagnoses your skin uh, based on all that information and comes up with a personalized skincare formula for you. They write you a digital prescription that gets sent to our lab, also in San Diego, and then we use the raw ingredients and actually mix your custom prescription for you and then send that to you on a monthly basis. Okay, so it's, uh, it's subscription and once you sign up, you sort of get a monthly box that has got all your products and is personalized to you. Yeah. Um, do you continue, and you continue to get kind of access to your doctor, your assigned doctor, as you're kind of going through that process? Yeah, so you can message your doctor on an ongoing basis, which okay. I think is really, we have the customization on multiple levels. It's one around, understanding your initial diagnosis and then you get an initial cream. But as your skin changes, you stay in touch with your doctor and we can keep changing your prescription, your cream over time. So mm -hmm. it's not just a one point customization. It really is a whole journey that you go through with us. Uh, most patients actually track their progress uh, by uploading photos on a regular basis, which mm -hmm. then helps us to see how things change over time. So that kind of covers kind of customization from a, obviously your product itself is personalized and customized because people's skins are different. Um, how does that then translate into your marketing? Because customization is clearly a very core brand tenant. Um, but with market, I think a lot of people are figuring out how to customize their product and personalization is a big thing. But I think um, sort of is going from this like reach marketing to this one-to-one, -one, we're trying to create that one-to-one -one relationship. Um, that's sort of the challenge that most people are having. Yes, and I think we still struggle with that as well. I don't think we have the holy grail, but we've invested a lot of time and effort to make it as good as we can, given the startup of our resources. I love having speakers who admit that they don't have it all figured out. So thank you for doing that. Okay, continue. Um, and, and so what we've done is we figured out that people actually love giving us information. I think the, the conventional wisdom is that you should make the flows as streamlined as possible mm -hmm. and as few clicks as possible all the time. And what we actually learned, because people want their product to be personalized and customized, they love giving us information. Our flow is, our sign-up flow is really extensive. I mean, we ask you down to what birth control pill you're using, because that might impact your skin. And people still write in and say, you didn't ask me enough questions. I want to give you another wall of text 
about all the other things I know about my skin, other products I've tried, and give you basically my entire skin history. Mm -hmm. And so that learning led us to actually keep asking for more information as people progress through the journey. So we have regular check-ins where we ask people, how are you doing? What's going well? What's not going well? And then we use that information, as well as the information from the initial sign-up, to give you targeted marketing. So if you filled out that you have oily skin in the beginning, we know that likely there will be complementary products that will be better for you. We also have guides and information that we then trigger and send you that based on what you filled out. Mm -hmm. um, we also ask you how often you applied uh, your Curology. Mm -hmm. Most of us sometimes fall asleep and you know, we forget, especially our audience is, is typically very young. It's kind of 13 to 29. The teenage years, it's hard to get them to uh, apply the cream consistently, but it's only effective if you do. And, and we find most people give us honest information, and so if we know that you're typically somebody who forgets more often, we can send you more reminders because we just know that that's probably the right thing for you. Once we know we've sent you more reminders, we ask you again, are you applying it more regularly? If you don't, then we try a different strategy. Okay, but so this is for existing customers. This how is for you, existing customers. How do you do that sort of for new customers and kind of acquiring new customers and then letting people know that the product exists? I think for, for new customers, what we do, we have a somewhat more simpler segmentation. So of course we know the marketing messaging that resonates between males and females and different age groups. If you're a teenager, what resonates is different than if you're in your late 20s and you're still struggling with acne. It probably means that you've tried 10, 20, 30 different products on your journey to clear skin. So the messaging towards that is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, if you're talking more about uh, our, the anti-aging side of our products, the custom mixes we do mm -hmm. um, for wrinkles, fine lines, and so on, again, completely different messaging. The imagery we show you um, and what we talk about is very different. The nice thing is because we have that in-house team of medical providers, mm -hmm. they get all that information about you at the time when they diagnose you, so it is a really personal service at that moment. Um, tell me a little bit of sort of you know, marketing mix. Where are you spending your money? Um, Maturity spending, uh, and just kind of percentages across different channels. So we're, we're, we're on all the digital channels that you can imagine. Uh, so like most D2C brands, pretty heavy uh, Facebook, Instagram. Given our younger audience, uh, heavier on Instagram than on Facebook. Okay. I actually recently made this chart, and I was really surprised. We used to be, a year and a half ago, about 40% Facebook. We're down to 10%. OK. Why is that? Uh, Facebook, of, uh, I think over time, it's aging more. So I did some interviews with teens, and the line that really stuck with me was, I'm on Facebook to upload pictures from my parents. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and otherwise, they don't spend time there. They all have an account, but it's not where they're spending most of their time. But it's not that sort of Facebook's become less effective as a overall marketing medium, or was there something? Because I think you know, we've heard across different brands, even those yep. that aren't necessarily just targeting younger people, that just Facebook's kind of become a different place to play. It's definitely become a different place to play. I think especially in the wake of the, the Russia investigation, uh, Facebook's making a lot of changes. I think they've, they've also changed their algorithm quite significantly mm -hmm. um, earlier this year, kind of the March, April, May timeframe. So certainly also uh, that also hits us. Um, the decline, though, actually predates that already for us. So that was more, you see another, earlier this year, you see another step function down. Mm -hmm. But I think in the grand scheme of things, that was more, I think as marketers, we've endured 
Facebook and Instagram always changing their algorithms for years, and it's always just you have to learn how to adjust, and there is an adjustment period. Mm -hmm. And so this was just another one of those. Got it. So Facebook, Instagram, what else? Facebook, Instagram. Spend a lot of time on YouTube. Um, okay. The young audience loves YouTube. Uh, I actually read that YouTube now, in terms of minutes, has surpassed the, the Facebook platforms. Mm -hmm. So that's really great. Um, and we do that in two ways. We work a lot with influencers um, and, and work directly with them. And then, of course, we have the standard pre-roll ads that you'd have. Okay. I think the channel where we're probably more unique uh, is that we spend a, a pretty meaningful share on Snapchat. Uh, given our younger audience, uh, Snapchat is a fantastic platform for us. Um, it, of course, requires a lot of differential creative investment. Okay. Uh, because the ads are so different, you have to shoot video for portrait, you have to custom design it, the 10-second format. It, it, it did require a lot of initial uh, effort on our side, but we've been super happy. The CPMs are, especially once you compare it to Instagram stories, are just so different. I mean, you're talking... When you say different, you mean lower? Yes. Oh, okay. uh, I mean, Snapchat, it's anything between a dollar, two dollars. Right. Instagram stories is six so to seven. You're getting more bang for your buck, and you're yep. getting the audience that you actually need. And the audience on Snapchat is super engaged. Right. Much so, so they swipe up a lot, they all come to our site. Let's talk a little bit actually about influencer marketing. I think that's something that's come up um, in a lot of ways. I think it's something that almost everybody's doing. Um, everyone's got slightly a different kind of twist on it. Um, some people kind of see it more as like, we're going to go out and find brand fans that. They already love us, they want to help us, I think right. almost, and we can do that, we'll send them some products, we'll get them to do it. Um, I think some people have a much more kind of process-oriented approach in which they're almost treating their influencers like, like creative partners and creative agencies, paying them retainer fees. Um, talk us through your model, and especially if that's changed over time as well. I think it's changed over time, and I think that's a function of the influencer space also just growing up. I think when we started, the when you, when you worked with an influencer, the pricing they commanded was very different versus the pricing you have today. Back then, it was just a, you gave them a small amount of money and some free product and they were super happy and, and did a video. And I think as those prices for us as marketers have risen, we've had to become more organized and more selective in the influencers we work with. So at this point, we have two dedicated people in-house who spend all their time just uh, managing, engaging with influencers or their agencies. Because most influencers, if you're mid-sized now, you actually have an agent. And so a lot of those agencies are down to LA, so we do a lot of trips down to LA to talk with the likes of Select, who manages a, a, a very large stable of influencers. And then we work with them to, to build uh, custom integrations that work for our brand. Okay. I think the other thing we figured out over time is also just helping the influencers. Because they, it's the combination of they know their audience, but we also know our product. Mm -hmm. So how do we educate them about what customers most likely want to hear about our product, kind of our core marketing messaging? And how do we bridge that with um, what an influencer wants to talk about? There's a video we did recently with an influencer called Emma Chamberlain. Mm -hmm. It was her first ever sponsored video. Okay. And so she came up with this concept where the entire video, she only talks about how this is her first sponsored brand video, which as a marketer, you think like, oh my god, this is never going to work, because <laughs> all she talks about is how she's sponsored. But it worked because she had been a customer paying us for more than a year. Her mom had gotten her onto Curology, and so this was a, so yes, already I'm, gotten her money already. I'm getting paid, but it's a real story. Mm -hmm. I've used this product long before I actually did this brand yeah. partnership. Is that actually sort of a dangerous 
place too for brands because I think that for a lot of people that don't have time or sort of people devoted to being able to find the right people who you know are already fans mm -hmm. of the product, and with kind of how influencer marketing grew, marketing grew up, it's also created agencies. And so, you know, I hear stories often of like, oh, we had to go find influencer, went through an agency, turned out there were people who never heard of our product, turned out there were people who didn't know how to use our product. Um, and what is the best way to guard against that, keeping in mind that most people, you know, do work with very limited resources when it comes to this? I think if you work with an agency, the important thing that we learned was still enforcing what mattered to the brand. So for us at Curology, we wanted real, authentic stories. And so even there was a time when we worked with agencies, we forced those agencies to sign up an influencer, have them use our product for four to eight weeks, take real pictures tracking their progress, kind of confirm to us that they're using it, interacting with their medical provider, and only then would we actually release the payment at the end. Oh, wow. So like creating the right incentive structure so it's not just somebody holding up the bottle saying, oh my god, this is amazing, it's so great, mm -hmm. and then that's the end of the story. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about kind of costs. I think uh, we talked a little while before we started the session just kind of about customer acquisition costs. Yeah. Um, a lot of people are finding sort of a real issue with kind of them ballooning, um, yep. but also knowing that they have to maintain that because that's sort of a big, big thing that, especially with DTC, that you're going to have to do. Um, but you've kept yours flat. We've been very lucky, yes. We've been, we've, over the last 12, 18 months, our CACs have been super flat monthly. New users are up 5x in that time period, roughly. I think the, it's a lot of working really hard. I, I think there's, again, no magic formula. Mm -hmm. I think what we've invested in a lot, we've built in, both an in-house user acquisition team, that's five people right now, and we have a relatively large creative team for the size of our company. So mm -hmm. I think we have 12, 13 creative folks in-house that worry about how do I think about creating that next hit creative mm -hmm. uh, and what that is uh, for Curology. So we have uh, in-house designers, copywriters. We have our own video team. Okay. Uh, How big? The video team is about three people. So, and we bought all the equipment for them. So we don't work with agencies there. We, we design our own ads. We write our own scripts. Uh, they go out. They shoot. Uh, we have a campaign coming up that um, you'll see the products will launch October 1st, but the, the, the tease is already on social. We built a set in our office. I mean, yes, it's only plywood, but it's a full-on Hollywood-style set to do that video shoot, hired the actors, and did that all in-house. Do you see that changing as you grow the company, but also grow your marketing budget? We've actually continued to double down and invest more. I think okay. we will just continue to hire more creatives. And not do agencies? Not do agencies. I feel every time I work with an agency, I'm getting not quite what I wanted for double or triple the price. And I think that's something that's interesting to watch kind of almost, you know, direct-to-consumer brands or just newer brands kind of chart a new way of building a brand that legacy brands have always kind of followed a very clear playbook. Um, and I think that you're sort of seeing this new way of doing it. Um, any kind of pushback or any sort of second thoughts you've ever had about, okay, should we be working with external partners? Should we be doing more? Should we be working with a different type of partner that have ever crossed your mind? And kind of how have you dealt with that internally? I mean, I think we, we, hire, we bring in external partners in for very select projects. So things that where we don't necessarily have the deep expertise, things like brand strategy, we do work with agencies there. Okay. But something that I view as core to keeping our direct-to-consumer funnel humming well, like making new videos all the time, that is absolutely something I want to bring in-house because I believe that's so core to us as a brand and our mm -hmm. success. It's a point of differentiation 
that our creative team over their years with us has learned, I need to shoot the video at exactly this angle so the texture looks this way they of know the, the product. They know the product. They know exactly what needs to be done. Yeah. And then we keep innovating on that versus an agency that people will rotate all the time and they'll have to relearn every time. Right. Um, it, it sort of goes back to the customization thing because you can kind of, if they know the product well, then they're the ones best suited to kind of make that happen. Yep. Um, tell me a little bit about sort of your, because I think, you know, Hillary mentioned in her opening remarks today that, you know, physical retail is sort of not dead, you know, and everyone's talking a little bit more about a resurgence there, but it looks very different from what it looked like in the past. Um, yep. What is sort of your approach and overall thinking as a brand about kind of physical retail and how that plays a part in your marketing? Model? Yeah. So definitely agree with those remarks. I think physical retail is great. I think it's a, it's a great experiential platform. For us, we've discussed that numerous times internally. Ultimately, for us, because of the customization and the prescription nature, we have so many barriers to be effective in physical retail that for us, I unfortunately don't think that will be a path that we'll pursue anytime soon. Mm -hmm. Just the cost, imagine we'd have to put a machine in a, in a Walgreens that custom creates all the custom mixes, has all the raw ingredients, we have to refill that. We have to authenticate that it's you personally picking up the medication because it's prescription. So we have to verify your ID and to put all that into some kind of a self-serve machine, I'm sure there could be enough VC money out there to have a go at this, but it feels like a really risky bet when people have already shown to us that they really love the online engagement, mm -hmm. they come back to the site, they talk to their medical provider. What about using it as sort of, you know, in kind of a more brand awareness play, pop-ups, kind of using yep. that more for that and sort of actually pushing the product out? Yeah, so that, we, that we've actually done. Okay. We had a pop-up down on Broadway uh, for a couple months. Mm -hmm. It was great, just showed the product. You could sign up online. Mm -hmm. And so that was very helpful. But that is a, is a pure brand awareness play, and it really doesn't drive uh, transactions and for that's us. not what it's meant to do anyway. Yeah. Cool. We've got a couple minutes for questions. Anyone has any? Just one up here. Grace is running behind you. Hi, um, so I work for Equinox and we're consistently playing with the right level of like the science component and, and how much we should be messaging that. And I'm, I'm curious to hear a little bit about that from you. Yeah, very interesting question. Uh, when Curology started out, we actually weren't Curology. We were called Pocket Derm, a dermatologist in your pocket. So that was very far on, on the deep science side it was doctors and lab codes all over the homepage. And it was really, if the customer we got was somebody who would otherwise go to a dermatologist and wanted something slightly simpler. But then I think as we talked to a lot of customers and kind of going back to our mission, we wanted to make effective skincare accessible. And we felt that only going after the people who can already afford a dermatologist and who have that background wasn't the right angle. And so we decided to actually dial that down. It's not that we don't show you our medical staff. They're definitely visible. We talk about them. And they're an integral part of the process, which is why they're full-time with us. But we talk more about the effectiveness of our product and the customization, because ultimately, we believe our consumers care about the product being effective versus the science that stands behind it. And it's also to make that accessible for people who kind of grew up in the world where dermatologists were just for rich people, and that's just not who we want to be. Hey, 
case. So it seems like 13 to at least 18, right? Don't have credit cards. Yep. How do you combat marketing to your end user, but also the guys that pay, right? Parents. Definitely super interesting challenge. I think what we found most effective so far is to reach the 13 uh, to 17 year olds and have them running to their parents and begging for Curology. <laughs> um, I think with parents, it's there, there's a lot of noise. If you compare the CPMs, for example, uh, the teenagers are a quarter of the cost of a parent. And then with the parents getting the targeting right, making sure they have teenagers uh, in that right, right age group, I think definitely something that you'll see us investing more in, but right now our effort is all about the teenagers because honestly they know best what they want. And a lot of teenagers have summer jobs where they might not have the credit card, but they actually have their own disposable income that they're using for Curology. It's, it was actually super interesting. We, we asked people recently to stack rank their expenses among college students, so slightly older, but some of them actually ranked us above their Netflix, which for us was really great to hear. It's like, okay, if we've made it past Netflix, we know we're in their priority order. Just password sharing, so they're done. Okay. Time for one really quick one. Yeah, one up there. Oh, okay. Sorry, she got the mic. <laughs> Sorry. Hi, um, I work for an optical brand. I just this might be a more operational or tactical question, but. If you have medical staff, then you must be HIPAA compliant, and I'm wondering how you then manage that type of data and privacy of a patient and their medical records and marketing tactics. Yeah, so we've built our own uh, electronic uh, health record, um, so we are compliant. Beyond that, I unfortunately can't share anything because that's proprietary information. All right, we'll end on that very mysterious <laughs> note. Okay, great, favorite. thank you so much. Thank you so much. That's all for this episode. Thank you for listening. If you liked our show, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Anchor.fm. You can also tweet at us. I'm at Aditi Sango. Stay tuned. We'll be back next week with another episode.